Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 4, If I'm Winning, I'm Still Losing Edition. I'm Tasha Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve. On today's show, we talk about creators with long, prolific careers and how we start to see them differently once they've built up a huge body of work for us to sort through. We'll hear from Scott Tobias and Noel Murray, reporting in via Skype from the Toronto International Film Festival on movies they loved that everyone else will get to see in a month or two. We make Keith miserable with a game devoted to the last words of film characters who die on screen, and then close with our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. So stay tuned. This week, yet another re-release of A Nightmare Before Christmas had us talking about the long career of composer Danny Elfman. Then the limited release film Killing Season had us talking about the long career of Robert De Niro. And the biodoc Harry Dean Stanton, partly fiction, started us talking about the long career of Harry Dean Stanton. Rather than discussing any of them in depth, we thought we'd talk about one of the things that unites them, the longevity that let each of them build a huge body of work. A long, fruitful career is judged very differently than a short or sparse one because it gives us much more insight into creators' obsessions, strengths, and limitations. Here to discuss it with me are Nathan Raymond. Yellow. And Keith Phipps. Hello. So guys, one of the things that just kind of came to mind when we first started discussing this topic is, for me, Danny Elfman, like back in the early 90s, there was no composer I was more excited about. If I saw his name in a trailer or God help us all, if another Tim Burton film was coming out, I would get excited. And I picked up his, the, like the albums of, you know, he did several album collections of kind of his movie themes. And listening to them, you know, the more that they accumulated over time, the more they started all sounding the same. And it kind of went from, oh my gosh, uh, like a new Danny Elfman score, it's going to be like nobody else's to a new Danny Elfman score, it's going to be like his other scores. Have you guys had that experience where you you see too much of somebody who's had a really long career and you kind of get sick of what they do? I I can actually follow your your Danny Elfman example where I similarly kind of gravitated toward his scores when he first came out and then after a while they did start to sound the same. Or there's the other Danny Elfman who is a little anonymous sounding and kind of shows up for the non-Tim Burton, non-action films as well. But I I think the thing with Danny Elfman in particular is there's a sort of limited bag of tricks and if you concentrate them on on them too closely, we'll sort of see I think that's true of a lot of artists. I think being being overly prolific can show that you're drawing on a somewhat limited number of tricks after a while. So there's, there's sort of an advantage to not showing up as often as, as your Danny Elfman's do. Right. And I think part of it is if you're very distinctive, which Danny Elfman was, you know, those scores sounded like nobody else's. That also kind of uh, makes you very liable to self-parody. Watching Blue Jasmine not too long ago, I was kind of thinking how like Woody Allen has given me more pleasure than just about any other filmmaker. Like I love Woody Allen. I love his world. I love his rhythms and he's probably aggravated me and angered up the blood more than another filmmaker and it's one of those things where again because he's made so many movies and it's so cyclical it seems like about five years ago you know kind of the trope is that he's kind of over he hasn't really made that interesting of a movie since uh, Sweet and Lowdown uh, and since then you know he's made a couple of films that you know obviously we can argue as to the relative merits of your um, your match points or your you know Midnight in Paris but you know he's certainly a vibrant relevant filmmaker all over again and it's kind of weird because it seems like he's not doing that much different of stuff. It seemed like the old board, you know, we don't really need you anymore, Woody Allen. Not that terribly dissimilar from like revitalized Woody Allen. And again, it's that weird thing where, you know, I knew I was in Woody Allen's world, like in the first three scenes in Blue Jasmine. And that was, you know, again, kind of exciting and reassuring and soothing and as familiar.
familiarity, but also frustrating and like, you know, the the same problems that I had with Blue Jasmine are the problems I've been having with him for decades and decades and decades. I think some of it's a numbers game. Also with Woody Allen, if Woody Allen were to stop like after say interior, just like it would be sort of an unassailable filmography of greatness. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his 80s work, but I, I think it wasn't necessarily seen as being like sort of in the zone in the 80s the way he was in, in the 70s. And if he'd stopped then, I think he would probably have two distinct phases. But as, as it went, I, I think he's a good example of how if you just do a little bit you know, there's a small body of work that people can kind of obsess over. If you do a lot, there's a whole world you can kind of sink into with lots of high points and low points. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, sort of like the Dylan discography or something. Right. But if you're somewhere in the middle, people tend to remember your highlights and, and forget the rest. Like if you think of like Errol Flynn, who had like hit after hit through the early 40s and then kept working after that, although those films are, are very, uh, looked at much less and remember it less fondly than his other films, although they were certainly more major releases at the time. Yeah, when you have somebody that keeps kind of exploring either the same topics or the same style and, you know, the same beats time after time, it can take on that familiarity, that comfort level, almost like a franchise. I think the way that some people come back to, you know, the same films in a series over and over and, you know, look forward to the latest Transformers or Jurassic Park or Fast and Furious or whatever, because they know what they're going to get. There are certain performers, particularly, I think, that you kind of come back to because you know what you're going to get. And hopefully you like that or you wouldn't keep coming back. One of the people that most come to mind is Christopher Walken, who's, you know, that that performance at this point is is pretty iconic. He kind of does the same thing in every movie these days. And you know exactly what you're getting with his with his performances. And looking back over a long history, you kind of see a lot of the same thing, but it's kind of become delightful. It, I do think it's descended into self-parody a right. little bit. D- d- delightfully so. Yeah, I, mean, I think he's very, fun. very cognizant of the fact that Christopher Walken is a thing now, that that's as much of a character as whoever he's playing. And yeah, he gets he's like, like a brand name. Like seven psychopaths that really like him, allow him to play off that character really brilliantly and, and really quite poignantly. I think that sort of like instead of just showing up for a scene, you get sort of these long, uh, longer extended takes with this character. I think it's really kind of an uh, example of an actor knowing what he does really well and, and handling that that part extremely carefully. I think the problem is, though, that, you know, for every Christopher Walken, there seem to be half a dozen Robert De Niro's who started off really, really strong and kind of built a, an early unassailable body of work. And seem to have kind of descended into sort of laziness where they're either doing self-parody or they're kind of trying to recapture that old glory. And there's sort of a feeling that, you know, how dare they tarnish their early work by continuing to exist, which is a really sad place for any creator to be in, where they're constantly being judged by one early high or a series of early highs that they can't live up to. Francis Ford Coppola comes to mm-hmm. to mind as that as well. Well, I think with De Niro, I think at some point he transitioned from Robert De Niro to Robert De Niro working actor. And as, you know, he's basically conducting his career the way most people conduct his career, which is like taking the jobs that, that come come his way. I mean, I read a uh, biography of Sergio Leone where he talked, there's a whole thing about how he had to convince Robert De Niro to play a part in, in Once Upon a Time in America because, you know, for De Niro, De Niro, De Niro to take on a part, it's like, it takes me a year to prepare for this role. <laughs> I have to do all the research. I have to sink into it. So it really has to be worth my time. And that's not the De Niro working now. I, I think in a way, I think people kind of accepted this. You, there, there's a point where in the, I'd say probably late 80s, early 90s when when uh, that De Niro took over. And I don't want to judge him too harshly because like I said, I think he's just doing a job like most actors do. And I, th- I think people only really notice Robert De Niro 
scenario anymore. If, you know, when, when a little sparks of the old or, you know, did, you know, who's bringing a little something extra to it, like Silver Linings Playbook pop up, which I thought was a really great performance and a good movie. And, and uh, I, I wish there were more of those than, than most of the things that De Niro appears in. But, you know, I, I try not to judge him too harshly. Yeah. I mean, again, you're totally right about, you know, actors have to act. And why should they be, you know, persecuted for doing the same thing that everybody else does when they go to their job every day? But I think with De Niro, people were so used to him phoning in with him being lazy, with him, you know, working beneath his dignity, that there is this sense of a joy and excitement when an actor appears to be trying. Mm -hmm. Eddie Murphy is kind of the same way. Robin Williams. Exactly. Like when there's like, here's a performance that they actually want people to see that they're actually emotionally invested in. Like I think that's, on one hand, that's exciting, but it also is kind of sad when people get really, really excited when Robert De Niro actually seems to care about the movie that he's in. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's there's always sort of a question of whether it's better for an actor to be out there as much as possible, you know, kind of maintaining their name and maintaining their fame, and whether, you know, all of the kind of negligible Robert De Niro performances or paycheck cashing Robert De Niro performances in some way, like, highlight the the really, the ones where he's really trying oh, totally, a little yeah. more. I mean, well, I mean, look at Michael Caine. He was somebody yeah. that you brought up when we were first discussing this. That is a man who's openly stated, you know, if they offered me work, I would take it. And he I feel like his career has has kind of ridden this roller coaster series from you know oh wow that guy's great and he's in everything too eh, that guy's kind of in everything too oh my gosh it's Michael Caine he's in everything and, he, and he's great and some of that is just familiarity kind of what you were talking about with sort of the comfort feeling earlier I really feel like with certain people like Michael Caine there's just kind of a feeling of continuity basically he's been around forever probably he's going to be around forever and we know that that people don't stay around forever but with somebody somebody like Michael Caine it almost feels like he could be right I mean the counterverse of that would be somebody like Cary Grant Mm. who after a certain point is like I don't want to be an old man aging on screen I don't want to look this way so he retired and part of me feels like well that that was really dignified like that is a really neat thing to do and part of me thinks like well what about all these like really interesting weird dark later performances that Cary Grant could have given like what if you know the filmmakers who knew Hollywood had get a chance to kind of reimagine who he could be so again and, and that kind of happens with you know your Jack Nichols a movie like about Schmidt really late in life sort of a character that people didn't anticipate him playing I thought did it really masterfully but again, I think with that, part of the excitement about that performance was Jack Nicholson not doing what he does all the time, him, doing, him acting in a movie. And that's, again, that, that's what people should be doing. That should not be the anomaly. That should not be, you know, the contradiction. Special occasion. We're trying tonight. Yeah. <laughs> you don't go to a restaurant It's like, tonight the food's actually pretty good. Right. Well, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's... The chef showed up. The problem yeah. is that, you know, then you, if, if you do stick with it, if you do stay in the field, you know, no matter what, you end up being Gene Kelly making your last appearance in Xanadu or Orson Welles making your last appearance in the Transformers movies you know at that point like doing a a graceful Cary Grant bow out might have been a better thing because there's always that just that feeling of you know that's that's going to tarnish your legacy like if your last movie is awkward or embarrassing or just kind of this like sad little period welcome to Moose Port decide what I believe will be Gene Hackman's final film yeah well but on the other hand I'll make the argument for pragmatism here where you know Cary Grant could probably you know step away and never have to worry about money for the rest of his life and and conceivably De Niro could too but De Niro Niro has a little empire of, of De Niro interest from 
the Tribeca Film Festival to, uh, I think he owns restaurants or something. I don't know. I mean, he probably wants money coming in to keep things afloat. And uh, you, you pick up a whole retinue of, of uh, hangers-on, uh, an entourage, if you will, uh, that you have to support. It is It is a profession. And that's, that's, that's something that should not be forgotten. Oh, sure. I mean, I don't, I certainly don't want to get into too far into questioning why people stay in the field or whether they should stay in the field. I mean, that's their business. I, I really don't want to be questioning whether Robert De Niro is making enough money to, to keep his restaurants afloat or whatever. I, I mean, it's very easy to judge from outside. That's, that's what it always comes down to. But I think that with, with people that have long, complicated careers, it becomes a lot more tempting to make those judgments because you have so much more to judge on. You know, you, you look at a James Dean and there's such a small body of work that it feels kind of unquestionable. But, you know, when you have somebody who's been in the movie for 40 years, there's also just sort of that feeling of sometimes you see somebody in in decline for reasons that aren't their fault. Julie Andrews comes to mind as somebody who, you know, her career is heartbreaking. She was such a vibrant performer and, you know, such an iconic singer for so long. And then she had minor throat surgery and she couldn't sing anymore. Mm-hmm. And she's just kind of starting to make the first noses back into the industry, taking non-singing roles. And I feel that kind of, you know, comfort food feeling of it's so great to see her again with, you know, just so much sadness built in for, you know, what could have been if, you know, her surgery hadn't gone badly. Yeah, I feel that way about Pop Newhart, you know, where whenever I see him in a movie, it's just like it reconnects me to my past. And it's also just a sense of like, I'm, I'm so glad he's still here. Uh, and then some people have a use for him in, in, in movies. Yeah. Ultimately, I would take a James Dean career that included a lot of De Niro-esque uh, wrong turns uh, over the short, perfect career he had. There's something to be said for the pleasures of watching a working actor do his or her job. You know, there's so many X factors with a movie that can go wrong. We keep going back to De Niro and like, you look at some of the choices, like I think he go, enters into something like a New Year's Eve knowing it's probably not going to be a good movie. Right. But there are so many X factors that separate what could have been a good movie for what what a film turns out to be too. You know? That's right. true. I mean, to cite somebody who's had a much shorter career, David Gordon Green, when I interviewed him, when I was kind of like researching his career, I mean, people give him a lot of shit for making movies like Your Highness, a movie like Your Sitter, which seemed to be a bit of a betrayal of like what he originally seemed to be as, as, as a filmmaker. But kind of looking at his career, like so much of it comes down to what films can get made and what can get financed. And, you know, the films that can matter to generally tend to be more commercial, you know? So I think that's something that people need to kind of get getting back to what you're saying, Keith, about, you know, a lot of times people aren't able to control the direction of their career or the path of their career. A lot of times external factors and circumstances dictate the movies that people can make and the films that, that are not made. I think with Green also there's sort of, I think he's happy to not do David Gordon Green movies. I think right, it's like, right. you know, he wanted to do some other things and it's hard to fault someone too much for that. What actors, we're saying is... Actors gotta act. What we're saying is just don't don't try that hard. No, that's not what we're saying <laughs> at all. But, uh, uh, but I think there's sort of an unforgiving eye in which people view these things as is perhaps a little too harsh. Sure. And, you know, if we want to be more forgiving, one of the things that's interesting about a long career, I, I kind of cited Coppola earlier without really getting into it. But, you know, there's a guy who's done some really interesting work and has kind of like gone off into his own corner to do his own thing and as much as I don't love his recent films it's kind of fascinating oh and I'd put David Lynch in the same category too Mm. it's kind of fascinating to see somebody taking that kind of freedom to do whatever they want you know to the degree that you get to find out like what they're really interested in and you know with a short career you don't have that opportunity when you build up enough of a body of a career and enough respect and enough money that you can kind of go do your own thing the the results are idiosyncratic and interesting they may not be great you know, but at least they're telling. 
Right. On the other hand, like it's interesting to see somebody like Harmony Corinne, who has been on the fringes of uh, pop culture and film for so long, make you know this kind of weird, daring kind of dart into the mainstream of something like Spring Breakers, which is not something that I think anybody would have seen. You know, looking back at kids and then the way his career has progressed. I think it was mainstream by by packaging. That's true. That's true. Uh, But it's the Harmony Corinne movie that America was talking about, which is not something that I ever thought a phrase I ever would 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 utter. They snuck that one in there somehow. I don't know. <laughs> and one way or another, it made a lot of money, which suggests that, you know, he may have a long career ahead of him where we can see whether he goes back into more, you know, narrow, weird things like the stuff that fascinated him at the beginning or goes off into a more commercial area. I, I think that's the fun of the long career, I guess, is getting to watch the whole of that roller coaster. Uh, yeah, with some of these filmmakers, uh, I definitely think of them as being kind of like sort of the cinematic equivalent of sort of box set musicians where you kind of have to see everything in the long view and just kind of this big picture as opposed to kind of seeing the individual details. I think it's also worth remembering that in the long view, long view is a way of sorting out things where the forgettable gets forgotten and the best work people have done tends to stick around. Well, except in this environment where nothing is forgotten and everything has to go into the box set. I look forward to buying the Michael Caine box set and seeing how many shelves that single box takes up. (laughs) Lots and lots of movies. Some of them good. But until then, I think we'll leave it at that and move on to the next step in our own long careers. Thanks, guys. Each year, dissolver Noel Murray celebrates his birthday by having Toronto throw him a massive two-week movie party. It's called the Toronto International Film Festival, and it's one of the year's biggest and most important film events, as hundreds of films premiere or build on word of mouth generated at earlier festivals. It's where films tend to solidify their reputations going into the fall prestige season, and it's a great place to map out the next three months or more of major releases. With us to discuss the Toronto International Film Festival, what they've seen on the ground, are Noel Murray. Hello. And noted film disruptor Scott Tobias, who oh. I understand had his his phone go off during a very important moment in a screening. I did. Uh, I'm I'm a horrible human being. I, I, this is it's never happened to me before, and and of course it couldn't happen in like you know, uh, G.I. Joe 2. It happened during this movie called October, November, uh, which is very silent. There's no music at all. And then it got to this, you know, deathbed scene. There's a very long death in the film. It was very quiet. And then that's when my phone went off. The, the room was filled for a few seconds with the uh, score for the film Suspiria. Uh, so uh, I, I apologize publicly for that. And I apologize again. It was awful. So I, I'm, I'm uh, making sure to be extra careful about keeping my phone off because yeah that was the worst and I'm, I I feel really bad. Well at least everybody knows with your ringtone that you're a film lover. I mean it's not like your phone went off and it was the theme to the wire. <laughs> That's right. No, no, no. It wasn't a uh, Gangnam style either. So uh... <laughs> Speaking of loving film, uh, you guys are a little over halfway through the film festival as we're talking to you uh, via Skype. What have you guys seen so far that you're most excited for in terms of stuff that's actually going to be released for the rest of us in the next few months? Well, I'd say a a couple movies. I mean, one is, I guess, the movie everyone is talking about, which is uh, 12 Years a Slave, Steve McQueen's uh, drama about slavery. Uh, that I think it's it's one of those movies like, I guess, Schindler's List would be the the, the immediate comparison that, that takes a subject that's uh, uh, extremely grave and, and gives it the right treatment tonally, but also has uh, is extraordinarily artful uh, um, and and powerful um, and just every bit as good as you've heard it. You've heard. Um, uh, and then the other one for me that I, I loved was the new Jim Jarmusch movie, Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, which I think is his best film since Dead Man. 
um, is his take on the vampire movie. And the, the thing that I find so brilliant about it is that he doesn't really get caught up in, in vampire mythos or, 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 or passion or any of that sort of thing. I think his, his primary interest is that these two people have been alive for centuries and they have developed... Uh, they have tremendous, incredible, interesting obsessions in, in, in cultural and in knowledge and in, in wisdom. And, and uh, just hear, just hanging out with them and hearing them, them talk is just a real pleasure. Yeah, I'll, I'll second 12 Years a Slave. I, I haven't seen the Jarmusch film, but 12 Years a Slave, which is based on a true story about a man who in 1841, uh, he was a, a violinist in upstate New York, and he uh, went on a trip and was uh, sold into slavery by two unscrupulous men, and the entire film uh, follows him as he goes from plantation to plantation, kind of biding his time, knowing that if he says too much about who he is, he could be killed immediately. And so trying to find the right moment to, to make his escape or, or, or let somebody know where he is and what's going on. So it's a very episodic film. Uh, there are several major actors uh, playing opposite. The, the, the lead actor is Chiwetel I never can pronounce his name right. Tasha, you, know, you, can, you can pronounce it, right? Chiwetel Ejiofor. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Um, and then uh, Michael Fassbender is sort of a cruel plantation owner. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is a more benevolent plantation owner who in some ways is even crueler because he's so nice. Um, and, you know, it, it, there's a real pull to the story as it goes from kind of one incident to another. There's a, a lot going on in the film, and, and it really has a real sweep to it. I mean, it's the kind of movie that I think you know, people are going to be talking about not just at, during award season, but they're going to talk about it uh, years from now, decades from now. I mean, I, I think it's one of those kind of like signature achievements. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree, Scott? Yeah, I mean, I think that's and that's something that has been an irritation for for Nolan. I, I think it's kind of a predictable one, which is that you know, at festivals like this, it gets to this, you know, you get to to Oscar season, right? And so there's all this kind of buzz that sort that, that that surrounds certain films, that one especially, and also you know, film like Gravity. Which I also quite like, but um, but that is the context under when it, when it, which these things are spoken, and so so it's all, all all about what's the buzz and like what you know is there a backlash uh, that's that's coming for this thing, and it's just like I, I just feel like all that talk is just garbage, um, and it keeps it, it, you know you know I think the film itself. Uh, there's just so much to engage in, and, and as as Noel says, it's a it's a movie for all time. Well, I mean, are there films there that have picked up a lot of buzz in terms of quality that that people are just talking about? You have to go see this film while you're here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, those Twelve Years of Slave and Gravity Gravity will certainly get uh, plenty of t- attention. They've are, they've already gotten a lot of attention, and seem to be the two movies that have been go- going from Venice to Telluride and now to uh, you know Toronto that have attracted a great deal of attention. Um, I saw a movie. Uh, last night, the new Errol Morris movie uh, called The Unknown Known uh, about Donald Rumsfeld um, that basically kind of gives uh, uh, him the the fog of war treatment. But the thing that, that I find, found fascinating about it is that uh, Rumsfeld is very much the opposite of McNamara and that he uh, is not a reflective guy. Uh, he he uh, and he re- reveals very little. So doing it in that style, it, you know, is is really about how. It is a film that reveals how un, un, unrevealing he is, and it's it's really fascinating, and, and it makes it a very interesting contrast to the Fog of War. And I think, you know, I think assessing that period um, uh, is something that um, will cause a lot of discussion, and and because uh, it's it's a fascinating movie, and Aaron Morris does it in his usual style. I'm going to mention Can a Song Save Your Life, which is a, the new film from the writer director of Once. He, he made a film after once that was really a, a film that he'd been working on for a while 
that he finally finished. And so this one is really, I think, his true follow-up. And it's also one of those uh, semi-musicals, much like Once. It, it's set in New York City. Keira Knightley plays a singer-songwriter whose boyfriend, who is played by Adam Levine, is a rock star who goes out on tour and leaves her behind with the understanding that they're, they're pretty much through. Uh, and then she's playing her songs one day, and Mark Ruffalo's uh, character, he, he plays a, a down-on-his-luck uh, music producer slash record mogul, finds her, takes her under his wing, and comes up with the brilliant idea to record an album live on the streets of New York. And so uh, the movie is, is you know, has these songs as kind of anchors that, that go throughout the film. And it's a little bit more forced than once. The, the songs are kind of shoehorned in in a way that they weren't in the previous film. Um, but it has the same kind of mood, the same sort of, you know, there were no real bad guys. There were no real heroes. It's just sort of a story about people uh, and the city they live in. And it's very shot kind of very off the cuff in a really attractive way. Um, I love the songs as well. I think they're really, really good, catchy pop songs, which is kind of hard to do for a movie. They're, they're written by uh, the, the New Radicals uh, singer-songwriter who's been kind of dormant for the past 10 years. You know, so it's kind of, kind of nice to hear his songs again. Um, and you know, it's got you know, really nice performances and a really nice mood. I mean, the whole idea of the film is that music is something that unifies us and heals us, which is something I'm kind of a sucker for. So uh, I've, I've seen a few people nitpicking it for being corny, and I would agree that it is, but it's also, I think, highly effective. Well, the, you and I, Noel, I think are a little more immune to the accusation of corniness against musicals. I mean, I, I really tend to enjoy musicals. I loved Once, which, you know, didn't get that much accusation of being like overly cutesy or overly sentimental. I have high hopes for that one. And, and your your review of it really makes me possibly <laughs> have too high hopes. But All we'll right, see. Well. We'll see. So uh, I, as far as I know, all of the movies you guys have mentioned so far uh, do actually have you know distributors and, and release dates and are coming out. Have you guys seen anything yet that you really appreciated that doesn't have a distributor yet that's you know kind of hunting around for, for a way to make it to the public? I'm going to mention um, Attila Marcel, which is the live-action feature filmmaking debut of Sylvain Chimay, uh, the animator who previously made Triplets of Belleville and The Illusionist. This film is about a mute young man um, who takes the psychotropic drugs to look back at his past and try and figure out kind of what got him so screwed up. He's an orphan, and he's trying to remember his parents um, and remember what happened to them and, and how they died and why they died. Uh, and in the context of these flashbacks, there are sort of colorful, surreal musical sequences uh, in, in a style that anybody who's seen Sylvain Chimay's films can probably imagine is you know, whimsical and imaginative. Uh, it doesn't entirely work uh, all the way through, but uh, it's got kind of a cumulative power, I think. And, and by the time it reaches its end, um, uh, it's it's highly emotional in a, in a way that I, I couldn't I could not couldn't resist. Uh, so um, uh, I, I would not put it quite on the same level as either The Illusionist or Triple to Belleville, but I think it's certainly a, a worthy first live action film from him. Yeah, I'd like to. Um, I, I'm 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 seeing a lot of. Uh, undistributed films uh, later in the fest um, because the, the the front of the fest is, is was really kind of you know top loaded with um, a lot of big movies but um, but the one I would stand up for currently is a movie called We Are the Best which is uh, a new film by Lucas Moodyson who um, who who early in his career did um, two films I loved uh, one called Show Me Love or Fucking Them All is is the other title for that one and uh, another movie called Together uh, which are both kind of warm and, and, and humane and, and really beautifully 
written. And then he sort of went off into a very dark direction, starting with Lilia Forever and then and then into a lot of um, more experimental, but and also, um, I, I thought, difficult and unsuccessful uh, movies. But uh, the old uh, Moody Sun is back with this movie, uh, which is about three 13-year-old girls who uh, form a punk band. Uh, and it's just, it's a wonderful slice of life. Uh, it's got a great spirit to it. It's really kind of adorable. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think it's a, it's a movie that's, uh, um, kind of, that's, you know, artful and, and accessible in a way that those early films were, and, and hopefully it will find some, uh, life, uh, in, uh, our houses. Well, terrific. Scott Tobias, Noel Murray, and Mike D'Angelo are still at the Toronto International Film Festival. They're doing day-by-day recaps of everything they've seen, which you can find at thedissolve.com. This is a long list of films that we're really, really excited about, uh, the rest of us getting to see. Thank you for previewing them for us, and, uh, we look forward to actually seeing them and being able to talk to you about them. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks. Now we've come to the game portion of our podcast, where this week we're going to try a new one we're calling Famous Last Words. The idea is pretty simple. I'll give the participants the last words of a film character, and they try to identify the film and the character. To make things simpler, since not all these characters have iconic, familiar names, I'll accept the name of the character or the name of the actor, but just identifying the film isn't enough. This week, in Scott's absence, we're enacting the Scott Tobias rule and knocking off points for incorrect guesses. Here to play the game are Genevieve Kosky, Nathan Rabin, and Keith Phipps. If I were to say, the horror, the horror, what would you say, Nathan? It'd be uh, Colonel Kurtz in uh, the movie Apocalypse Now. Okay, don't forget that actually identifying the movie is key. Uh, we okay. need both the uh, the film and some approximation of the uh, the character. We will also accept, oh God, that one guy who's the protagonist who did the, does the thing. <laughs> if it's fairly clear, you know who you're talking about. Do we get a point for each or uh, one point for both answers? It's an all or nothing proposition, Genevieve. You've got to get them both to get them right. Oh, I won't get any right, so it's <laughs> there's, moot. There's a couple or here that are... moot. Oh. This, this it seems like it's going to be hard. Pun humor. <laughs> Negative two points for her. Well, to make it a little bit easier on you in each one of these cases, uh, if nobody gets it right away, there's a follow-up clue that should make things a little bit clearer. Some of these are fairly iconic, and some of them I'm hoping that you'll just pick up by context based on how people die. By the way, this was the most depressing game ever. <laughs> <laughs> an awful lot of film characters' More final words. More than Knife Gun Other? Yes, actually. An awful yeah. lot of film characters' final words are along the line of, please, oh God, no, I'm begging you, no. <laughs> So let's get started with this cheerful, cheerful game. Uh, number one, Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? That's the character played by James Cagney in Little Caesar. Uh, very, very close. You've got the movie character right. You... played by Edward G. Robinson. Uh... Yes, well, we'll give you the point for that. Oh, you, no, you... no, no, I don't. No, no, no I don't we, deserve... you knew what no, you were talking no, about. No, this is zero. No, no, I, I refuse <laughs> this point. Zero, zero, zero. Well, then, <laughs> what Keith said. <laughs> for Genevieve. That's fine. There we go. Uh, number two. All these moments will be lost in time like tears in the rain. It's a character played by Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner. Very good. Roy Batty. Moving on. Number three. I couldn't eat another thing. I'm absolutely stuffed. All right. Just one. Um, <laughs> the incredibly morbidly obese character played by, I'm thinking, Graham Chapman in The Meaning of Life. You're right. It's actually Terry Jones. But as Terry I said, Jones, okay. if you if you know who you're talking about, that's good enough for All me. Right, that's that's okay. deep makeup. So I, 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 I think yeah. that's... I had to look it up myself. He gained, he gained some weight for that scene. <laughs> yeah. He 
in a very Robert De Niro-like way. It's like, I don't have to put on a thousand pound fat suit, but I'm going to put on three pounds just for the sake of authenticity. Okay, number four. Yes, all that I have and more. Please, anything you want. No buzz. All right, uh, the follow-up clue would be the answer to the, the next line said by the person killing him is, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. And the line previous to that is, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. <laughs> All right, Jenny, let's hear it. Inigo Montoya, Princess Bride. Oh, I can't give you that one. You've got oh. the movie right, but oh, Inigo Montoya shit. doesn't die. Shit, shit, shit. Um, Would the guy Inigo Montoya kills be an acceptable <laughs> answer? <laughs> It's Christopher Guest, guys. Oh. Uh, I would have also accepted Count Rugen or the Six-Fingered Man or that one bad guy with the awful, awful hair. <laughs> Damn it. All right, moving on. Number five, you already have. You were right. You were right about me. Tell your sister you were right. It's Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. You got it. It's going to be one of those Keith walks away with it with everything. No, we're going to start giving I, Keith a... We're grading on a curve. Boss. The shame I'm wearing for getting that for, for that first one. I hope Keith keeps giving away his points for me to steal because <laughs> that's the only way I'm staying in this game. <laughs> well, he's building up a pile of them. All right, let's move on. Number six. We'll be the ultimate family. A family of three joined together in one body. Yes, Nathan. Uh, the human centipede spoken... <laughs> Uh, by the character of the human centipede in the movie the human centipede you're sadly uh kind of close it does involve <laughs> uh, horrible horrible insect uh human crossovers we'll finish the finish the quote a family of three joined together in one body more human than i am alone cause of death immediately after that horrible transporter accident that's jeff goldblum and the uh, fly yeah. there you go but what about the fly too <laughs> He does not die again. Jeff DeQuilboom does not die again in the fly too. Number seven. What's one more body among the foundations? Well, what are you waiting for? Do it. Do it. I like watching Tasha act. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even have a clue for this one because I thought thought the comic book fans in here would certainly jump on this. Who who invites himself to be murdered by a big... That's that's Ozymandias and Watchmen. Oh. You got the you've got the film. You don't oh, have the character. Oh no, I I know it's Rorschach and Watchmen. <laughs> take it, Genevieve. It's yours. Rorschach, Watchmen. No. We would have also accepted what Keith said. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Genevieve, with two giveaway points. <laughs> Moving on. Here we've got another classic. Made it, Ma. Top of the world. I'm thinking James uh, Cagney in uh, Public Enemy. <laughs> It's James Cagney in White Heat. White Heat. Redemption. <laughs> redemption. All right. Uh, All right. Nobody's dying words were redemption, although uh, Braveheart's last lines were freedom. We left that one off. Uh, okay. <laughs> I would advise you not to interfere. Hello? Get me the radio tower. Immediately followed by a gunshot. Immediately followed by a beautiful friendship. <laughs> that is, um, oh, wait. <laughs> Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Casablanca in Casablanca. Uh, as I say, we will accept that one guy. Uh, d- d- tell me this. Who who kills him? I don't, I don't my entire appearance on this. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, wait, wait, no. Wait, wait, no uh, Claude Rains. Claude Rains, yes. Or is it Humphrey Bogart that there kills him? There you go. It, well, it's, it's yeah. Humphrey Bogart who kills him, yes. yes. Right. But Claude Rains is there. I, I decided. <laughs> is Paul Mooney there too? I don't this know. Is a, this is exciting. This, uh, this is a, a bitter and brutal competition. Who got the point? Nobody gets the point on this Nobody one, gets right? the point okay. on this We Thanks. all lose a point yeah. everybody, on that one. Yeah, everybody knows it's Casablanca, and that's close enough. Um, all right, number 10. I'm really curious if people are going to get this one. I'm, I'm kind of betting on Keith, but we'll see. 
I am the wellspring from which you flow. When I am gone, you will have never been. What would your world be without me, my son? Most ridiculous name ever, played by James Earl Jones. Long speech, the uh, guy that he's talking to immediately lops his head off. And- oh, it's it's the cult leader, played by James Earl Jones, in, uh, uh, in Conan uh, the Barbarian. You are correct. Can you come up with his name? Oh, yes. Eamon Toth. No, no, no. Eamon no. Toth is from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. no. But it's close to that. Falsa doom. Okay. <laughs> Keith is looking so defeated for somebody with like eighty-seven. It, it, yeah. If I'm winning, if I'm if I'm winning, I'm still losing. Oh, that's so sad. He's All right. Brooding over the one he didn't get right. Here, this is uh, this is actually somebody's last line, but we'll also just aim it at Keith, like I'm saying it to him. What is your major malfunction, <laughs> numb nuts? Didn't mommy and daddy show you enough attention when you were a child? Yes, uh, Nathan. That would be uh, Arlie Ermy. It's a character uh, saying to the character of Piggy in Full Metal Jacket. Full on points for that one. Every aspect of that was correct. All right, let's move on. Number 12. I hope that when the world comes to an end, I can breathe a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to. Genevieve? Is that Donnie Darko? It is, in Donnie fact. Donnie Darko? <laughs> it, it does help when they're named. Can you name the movie? <laughs> it's the one with Donnie Darko in it. Is that S. Darko? <laughs> All right, uh, Genevieve gets the point. A real point. Yay. (laughs) A a non-pity point, an authentic point. Number 13, last word. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. No buzzing? Uh, I'm hoping that you get it from the line that the character says immediately before that. I admire its purity, a survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse. It's alien. Yes. Do you remember the character? Mm. The character is the robot played by... Played by, no, not played by John Hurt, Ian Holm. Yes. In the, in the film Alien. Correct. I would well, like to apologize for uh, suggesting that John Hurt portrayed the character. I'd like to apologize for saying robot when I meant android. <laughs> Keith does not get an extra point for uh, correctly identifying uh, him as an android, but he does get full points for that one. All right, number 14. Pretend I did blow up the school. All the schools. Now that you're dead... Uh, that would be Christian Slater's character in the movie Heathers. Very well done. Now that you're dead, what are you going to do with your life? I thought you were going to do corn nuts from Heathers. <laughs> I was tempted. I didn't, do, I didn't do more than one from any movie, but I was pretty tempted by corn nuts. Um, all right, number 15 is equally short. Superman. <laughs> really? Nobody? I'd be all over this one. Uh, perhaps if I do it in the, in the acting voice. Superman. Oh, so sad. Uh, this is the movie that makes everybody cry, and it, the line in it that makes everybody cry. Think, uh, think, giant robot hurtling through space. Oh, Iron Giant. That's Thank right. Thank you. Of course. Character as as played by Vin Diesel. <laughs> I believe the character was the Iron the Giant. The Iron Giant yeah. in the Iron Giant. Number sixteen. Look at me. You have your mother's eyes. Tasha's looking at me, and it's freaking me out. <laughs> it's because you have your mother's eyes. No, it's which is also ta- uh, Genevieve's last words. <laughs> Well, they, they really <laughs> All right, Genevieve, the, the line immediately before that one, take them to the Pensieve. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, obviously it's Harry Potter in... Oh, so it's Snape in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Point for Genevieve. Phew! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if, you were, if you didn't get that one, I would have been sad. Now I know why you were looking at me with your mother's eyes. All right, number 17. Tell our story, Christian. Promise me. Yes. That way... I'll always be with you. And then she dies ever so beautifully. I can see Genevieve <laughs> reaching for it. Uh, do you remember a movie uh, that has a romantic lead named Christian 
whose significant other dies in a most beautiful fashion. Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, 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 I, I can't stop thinking of Fifty Shades of Grey, and I know that's not yeah. it. Okay, that one's Moulin Rouge, and nobody gets oh, the point. Oh, okay. oh goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, according to our brutally accurate scorekeeper, Ryan, uh, with the actual deductions for incorrect guesses, uh, Keith is actually a, a, at a lower score than we would have thought. Keith has four, Nathan has one, and Genevieve has three, which means this is still anybody's game with just a few questions left to go. Let's see how it goes. Number 18. I want you to promise me you're not going to stop this fight no matter what. No matter what. <laughs> Yes, Nathan. Would that be Apollo Creed in uh, the motion picture entitled Rocky 2? Rocky 3. Keep counting. Rocky 4. Rocky 4. Rocky 4. Rocky 4. I fucking, I cried at Apollo Creed's uh, death. I think I should get the point merely on my, I had to, I think for admitting I had to go out into the lobby. I was weeping. I was so fucking sad that Carl Weathers was dead. I I think for for admitting that. A stew of sadness. That's what he was I think you got Apollo Creed and Carl Weathers. I I think you get the point. All right, there we go. All right, number 19. And it was Drago who killed him. Three more points for room. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Number 19. Come on. I take your fucking bullet. You think you kill me with bullets? I take your fucking bullets. Go ahead. And then he, he takes a lot of fucking bullets. Uh, it's, uh, it's Al Pacino and Scarface. There you, there you go. Yeah, there we go. And, uh, oh, sorry. What, what was the character's name? Uh, Scarface, <laughs> Scar- perhaps? His name was, uh, Tony Montana. <laughs> A.K.A. Scarface. Although you, you didn't do it. With a terrible accent. Yeah. How good, how good any of us have known what you were talking about? Wait, who you're doing impression of? <laughs> John Travolta. It's always John Travolta. <laughs> All right, here is number 20. And actually, if anybody gets this, I will be extremely impressed. This is one of my favorite on-screen deaths of all time, but the uh, the line itself kind of surprised me because it doesn't seem very iconic. Uh, get away from those burrows, I tell you. Get back there from my burrows. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Naked lunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, the wife just before she uh, she she got it in the head. I know it's a joke, but you lose a point. <laughs> really, I was going to award him a point for that. <laughs> okay, uh, so here's a hint: the burrows that uh, the character wants the wants them to get away from are uh, heavily loaded down with bags of gold dust. They don't get away from the burrows. They they in fact shoot him. Oh. Treasures of Siedra Madre. Yes. Oh. Thank you, Nathan. Wow. I'm you, you get a point for that one. You can probably name the character if you think about it. Got him. Or not the character, but the, the actor. Oh, it's Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart, yeah. All right. Well, Nathan pulled up a little bit from behind there, but uh, Keith is still uh, Keith is still our grand champion of horrible death. He's shaking <laughs> his head master. and looking sad. I think every game makes Keith sadder about how good he is at these games. Every Keith, victory isn't perfect enough. Keith's last words are going to be, I did so well at that game. What? I hate myself. <laughs> My last words are going to be. <laughs> All right. Thanks for playing, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Once again, we're concluding with the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell. People's recommendations about their favorite films sometimes get long and baroque, so here's where we encourage people to cut to the chase and compete for our attention as concisely as possible. Two dissolvers have exactly 30 seconds to sell the host on a movie or something related to cinema, a book, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever they want. It's a competition, and the host's decision, which is to say my decision, is final. Up first, we have Nathan Rabin. All right, I'm going to use my 30 seconds to sell the movie Rewind This, which is a wonderful, wonderful uh, little sleep about the world of VCRs and VHS and video stores. And in 2013, the video store, the VHS, it seems like garbage technology, just terrible. But this movie kind of illustrates how it wasn't just 
not garbage. It was wonderful. It was magical. It brought this whole new world of film into the hands of anybody who wanted them. It hit all of my nostalgic speed spots. It features the box for Frankenhooker. Nathan Rabin going over time, but once again, selling with the enthusiasm. All right, Keith, Keith Phipps, you are up. You're going to have a hard time competing with that level of energy. I won't try, but I will say that if you enjoyed that film, you probably will enjoy the book Portable Grindhouse, which came out a couple of years ago, which is not only uh, it's sort of proportioned like a VHS tape, but it features all the lurid, wonderful, terrible, mostly terrible, but also kind of wonderful uh, covers to VHS uh, B-movies that Nathan and I got to experience firsthand when we worked together in a video store. So anyone nostalgic for the VHS era and looking for a book that can carry around with a whole video store in their pocket, that's Portable Grindhouse. Uh, uh, all right. I'm a little uh, cleaner, a little neater. And and he came in just under time. All right. That is a, that is a hard one. We've got enthusiasm <laughs> versus, uh, versus a, the slick and practiced cell. Versus coherence. <laughs> I'm going to give that one to Keith. I, I think go. you both made made really good arguments for it. I'm actually interested in both of them. But Keith's uh, Keith's calm, controlled cell has kind of wormed its way into the back of my head. Go. I think I'm going to have to check out that book. And as as a conciliatory note, I, I will say that I have not seen Rewind This, but I suspect when I do, I will say, this would make a great pairing, this book and this movie. So you should maybe uh, enjoy both. A perfect pairing, one might say. An, addition, an additional 30 seconds to sell on all of the things. <laughs> That does it for episode four of the Dissolve podcast. Tune in in two weeks for episode five. In the meantime, you can experience the Dissolve on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, as well as in website form at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. And if you want to congratulate Keith on his stunning famous last words, victory slash non-victory, he's kphips3000, K-P-H-I-P-P-S 3000 on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.